listening to Descent Magazine's Belaboured Podcast, hosted by Sarah Jaffe and Michelle Chen. Hey, Sarah. Hi, Michelle. And welcome to Belaboured Episode 122. In this edition, we will feature voices from the Day Without Immigrant protests from the Midwest and from Los Angeles, and we will look at immigrant worker organizing in the age of Trump. But first, the news. Well, seems like Uber can't stay out of trouble these days, on top of lawsuits over labor disputes, bad press over the CEO's buddy-buddy ties to Donald Trump, clashes with local officials over taxes and regulations, etc., etc. It can now add male chauvinism to its litany of deplorables. Susan Fowler, a former employee, a top coder, who until last December worked as one of the few women in Uber's exclusive engineering team, recently disclosed in a blog post that the reason she left was that she was systematically sexually harassed during her time there. To the women on the inside, this comes as no surprise. But Fowler's blog post, between the lines and explicitly, reveals how Uber itself and its company culture has systematically oppressed and alienated many of its female employees. It became clear shortly after she was hired that a certain notorious manager at the company, who was known for doing the same thing to other women, repeatedly propositioned her and uh, sowed a generally misogynistic climate at the company that culminated in her taking her complaints numerous times to human resources and being dismissed, saying that he was simply a first-time offender, um, suggesting that she was somehow at fault or being overly sensitive for bringing his egregious behavior to the attention of the authorities, and basically she was stonewalled, and this was in the context of a number of other incidents of discrimination that she experienced repeatedly over there. And she discovered later that many other women at the company had actually been harassed by the same so-called first-time offender. And uh, she went public. She hoped that it would spark a deeper conversation, not just about Uber, but about gender discrimination and oppression across all of Silicon Valley. It has yet to be seen what Uber and other companies will do about the problem, but the fact remains that the entire corporate culture of the tech world remains extremely male-dominated. Uh, rather doodly, and um, it's a direct consequence of the freewheeling attitude towards rules and regulation that pervades the big business model of big tech. Now, corporate leaders are vowing to fix the problem, and they even enlisted former Obama administration attorney general Eric Holder to investigate the company's sexism, supposedly independently. But it does seem like the rot is embedded in the structure and the culture of the entire industry. And this is not helped and is in fact manifested by the systematic lack of diversity in terms of both race and gender. And Clint Finley in Wired Magazine writes, many tech companies, HR departments seem to have either no will or no ability to discipline employees. The racism and sexism pervasive in the tech industry leads to disbelief of victims' claims and their contributions to their companies are often not valued. And in fact, it turns out that what makes Uber a successful business is also what makes it a pretty evil boss, not just for its drivers, as we've talked about many times before on Belabored, but even in the office jobs as well. 
Labor should rightly be proud of itself for killing Andy Puzder's shot at setting labor policy in the Trump administration, the first of Trump's nominees to go down in flames when it became likely that he would not actually get a confirmation vote. Puzder was one of the worst of Trump's would-be wrecking crew, but that doesn't mean we're out of the woods yet. Alexander Acosta, Trump's new nominee and the first Latino nominated by this administration? Shocking, right? is uh, more of a mainstream Republican, which means that when you dig a little bit, you find that he's been involved in fun things like voter suppression. Acosta clerked for Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito, he of the Harris versus Quinn decision, which we have discussed, who was at the time a judge on the United States Court of Appeals for the Third Circuit, and he was also a senior fellow with the right-leaning Ethics and Public Policy Center. He was then briefly on the National Labor Relations Board as a Bush appointee, which means, oh my gosh, he actually has some familiarity with labor law but then was appointed as an assistant attorney general with responsibility for leading the U.S. Department of Justice's Civil Rights Division under Bush. In that position, he did fun things like intervene in favor of uh, Ohio laws that allowed, in essence, conservative activists to stand around at polling places and challenge the right of other people, read Black and Latino people, to vote, in a move that was considered both highly unusual and highly partisan. Perhaps more relevant to his labor credentials, the Civil Rights Division under his watch was embroiled in a hiring scandal in what was considered a naked attempt to turn the division into a partisan stronghold. These things may be connected. One of Acosta's subordinates, an investigation found, broke civil service law by considering partisan affiliation in hiring and bragged about it, saying things like, my tentative plans are to gerrymander all of those crazy libs right out of the voting section. Acosta was definitely made aware of an incident where this subordinate made racist jokes, but it appears that nothing was done. He might have had to apologize. Unclear. Uh, Parts of labor leadership have indicated, though, that Acosta is a pick, unlike Puzder, that they are more willing to live with, but others are less pleased. Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights Under Law President and Executive Director Kristen Clark told The Nation's John Nichols that she was, quote, astonished by the nomination of Alexander Acosta to serve as the Secretary of the U.S. Department of Labor. She continued, Mr. Acosta led the Civil Rights Division at a time that was marked by stark politicization and other improper hiring and personnel decisions that were fully laid to bear in a 2008 report issued by the Office of the Inspector General. It is hard to believe that Mr. Acosta would now be nominated to lead a federal agency tasked with promoting lawful hiring practices in safe workplaces. In recent days, an unlikely group of protesters has been storming the streets across the country. Climate scientists... They are both concerned about the Earth's warming climate and alarmed about the hostile political climate in Washington. At a conference in Boston of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, many leading lights of the scientific community spoke out about Trump's policies being a danger to scientific integrity, academic freedom, and health and the environment, of course. Since the election, many scientists working for our agencies have protested publicly and anonymously as reports have emerged of censorship, surveillance, intrusive interrogations, and general anti-science gag policies uh, being imposed on scientists working for agencies like the Department of Energy and, of course, the Environmental Protection Agency, the uh, longtime foe of the guy who was just picked to run the Environmental Protection Agency, Scott Pruitt. And by the way, that is happening amid a hailstorm of legal troubles over his refusal to disclose records of his dealings with certain fossil fuel corporations during his time as 
Attorney General of Oklahoma, during which time he also championed the rights of polluters to continue polluting our environment and dumping carbon into the air. So that's the guy who's going to be heading environmental policy. And uh, scientists are out in force worried that they'll either be silenced or defunded or pushed out of the job altogether. And you might wonder why this is not a violation of some kind of labor law or free speech rights. And Jeff Rooch of Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility, he explains that the weak protections for scientific integrity and the the ongoing oppression of scientists is actually a systemic problem that long predates Trump. While some science personnel working in government agencies are protected somewhat by scientific integrity policies, these are extremely policy and agency dependent, standard federal whistleblower protections still are pretty weak when it comes to explicitly safeguarding the right to dissent when it comes to matters of science. So this isn't new, but this the intensity of it is kind of off the charts. So it wasn't like the Obama administration was a bowl of cherries. So on an issue after issue, like so, for example, several EPA fracking investigations were shut down under Obama. On environmental enforcement, it continued to decline. Flint happened on just watching. That didn't result in any significant reforms. So this isn't new. And what employees come to us for is help. Sometimes they're in trouble, and so we do a lot of whistleblower work, and sometimes the work is of a personnel nature. But more often, it's that the agency is affirmatively doing the wrong thing or deliberately refusing to do the right thing. And employees are coming to us on issues of suppressed science, lack of enforcement. You don't have any whistleblower rights on a policy matter. And frankly, one of the big controversies now that centers on scientific integrity is that until recently, uh, the law, particularly the civil service law, treats scientific and technical disputes as a matter of opinion, in which case the agency hierarchy always wins. Uh, the, the old saying, you're, everyone's entitled to their own opinion but not their own set of facts. In practice, government agencies generally are entitled to their own set of facts. So absent scientific integrity policies, things like for example, a decision to prevent somebody from submitting something to peer review publication isn't even considered a personal action that's subject to any recourse at all. And going back to the Trump administration, they don't show any signs of tolerating discordant news. And that was Jeff Rooch of Public Employees for Environmental Responsibility. By the way, the issue is not over yet. There's a big march for science being planned on none other than Earth Day. Scientists inside and outside government will stand up against the fiercely anti-intellectual White House and show that there's still room for intelligence in Washington, just not really inside the Oval Office. We have covered the organizing attempts of bank workers before on this podcast, most recently in episode 89, where we spoke with Khalid Taha of the Committee for Better Banks. In the latest development from this labor-backed campaign, 15,000 bank tellers at Santander Bank are demanding a union, something that their colleagues in banking's rank and file elsewhere in the world already have. And those workers at Santander's European and South American banks demonstrated in solidarity with their U.S. colleagues. The campaign kicked off Tuesday, and like every campaign from the Committee for Better Banks, it places the emphasis both on bank workers' low pay and lousy conditions, and also on the way that unionized bank workers can help stop predatory lending. The tellers routinely say that they dislike the high-pressure sales goals that they are required to meet, which push them to push unnecessary financial products on consumers. 
workers in Dallas with Santander Consumer USA, where subprime auto loans are among the products on offer, criticize the office's nepotism problem as well. The Dallas workers, along with their colleagues in New York City and Boston, marched to deliver petitions for neutrality from the Spain-based bank. Meanwhile, workers in Argentina and Brazil plan to hold rolling strikes, open stores an hour late for a discussion of the U.S. situation, respectively. In Italy, Portugal, Spain, and Germany, bank workers delivered letters of support to officials. The Brazilian bank unions in particular have been supporting the U.S. effort in on the theory that the global banking sector would be better for the globe if workers in the U.S. had more rights to stand up for themselves and their customers against predatory practices. If you work at Santander or bank there, you can reach us at belaboredatdissentmagazine.org and we will have more information on this and everything else we discussed today at the Dissent website. Donald Trump is, I'm sure all of our listeners know, beefing up the deportation forces, promising to remove millions of undocumented people from the United States. In response, last week around the country, undocumented workers went on strike in a series of day-without-an-immigrant actions designed to show the country what it would actually be like to lose its immigrant community. At the same time, the strikers and their supporters flooded the streets in protest, with massive marches dominating in places like Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and small businesses closed all across the country in solidarity. I spoke with German Sanchez, a dairy worker from Wisconsin and member of Voces de la Frontera, about the strike that he helped organize in that state last Monday, February 13th. Obviously, this was a, a local particular issue, but um, obviously Donald Trump is president now. So can you talk a little bit about how things have changed um, with Donald Trump as president? As a farm worker, mm-hmm. the work is the same, the same hard work and, and whatever. But uh, so right now we got this atmosphere out there, uh, executive orders and politician issues. So some, some things are through, some things are out. Some TV channels uh, use different some information, and it's not clear for the community. So, yeah. uh, so right now it's, it, it was really hard. I mean, and and I'm not talking about the job. I'm talking yeah. about the atmosphere that you can feel, that you can smell. Mm-hmm. Yeah, talk a little bit about the the organizing that went into last Monday's action. How long did that take to come together? Well, um, we take like maybe. Eight days, nine days, maybe. Wow. Um, uh, but uh, okay, my the thing that I do, I, I use uh, social media to educate my community and what's wrong. Yeah. Um, and we spread out the message, and we try to be as much clear that we can, for they they understand the consequences. Right. Uh, and of course, for them to understand our options, also. Yeah. Talk a little bit more about the work you do organizing on the farms. Yeah, it's, it's hard because of course I had to do my work too. But um, right. in my let's say in my in my lunch break, mm-hmm. I make that I make that the uh, emails or text message. Um, when I'm done my day, I make a video to tell them. Uh, let's say let's talk about last year. Yeah. Uh, last year, a lot of people don't know how works the capital in Madison. Mm-hmm. So. A lot of people don't know how it works the law. Even even some American people don't know. Yeah. So uh, my point is, I educate myself. I talk to some lawyers. I talk to some person about what what is the AB four fifty. What what yeah. does it mean? SB five three three. Yeah. So all those things 
and that I learning about it, I spread it up, of course, in Spanish for my community. Right. So they, under, they understand what is the levels of law moving in the capital and what is, my, what is our options to do and against those uh, bills and immigrants. So um, it, this, this, this is the hard part to educate the people and understand those bills. It, it, it was hard. It was hard. So I do videos maybe twice a day um, to talking about that. And of course, I answer te uh, text message back. I answer back emails. I mean, different, all the emails, a lot of questions, a lot of concerns. And of course, um, a lot of people are so concerned about the consequences to uh, don't go to the don't go to work, you know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, but anyway, um, with those anti-immigrant bills, it's easy. You can last one day in your work. Yeah. But if the bills moving, you can last everything. People are now planning for a, a nationwide day without an immigrant on May first. Can you tell us about the organizing you you guys are doing going forward? Well, we are actually we talking about that the last Monday in Milwaukee. Yeah. Uh, we 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 got the meeting that day and the night in Milwaukee, and I got some meetings with some people here in the Fox Valley by Alberton, Green Bay. Um, yeah, we had to definitely we had to show our our power in our in the economy because. Again, we are not able to make difference in police and politicians uh, deals, but of course we live here, we make money here, and we spend money here. Right. So we 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 are really spread out the message for our community and be ready uh, in the best way possible. I mean, we are not talking about going and make a. Uh, noises for nothing. No, we got idea. We got a logistic. Uh, last year, it was the same than this year. Um, not problems, not issues. Um, everybody goes back to home safe. Uh, the, play, the last year, the capital it was clean after we leave. Yeah. Uh, last Monday, Milwaukee, the courthouse, it was clean when we live in. So yeah. those are the message that we try to send it out for the country and the state. We are uh, uh, we are hard workers. We are a family um, oriented too, yeah. and we share a lot of a lot of the same values as Americans. So this is our our big uh, our big challenge. Um, let the people know that we are part of their neighbors, or we are part of their communities. That was German Sanchez. I also spoke with Christine Newman-Ortiz, the executive director of Voces de la Frontera, about the history behind Milwaukee's action, the last time the nation had a general strike of immigrants and the build towards another such strike on May 1st. Voces de la Frontera had a really massive day without an immigrant last week. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Um, yes, we had on Monday, February 13th, um, day without Latinos, immigrants, and refugees, and uh, it was a statewide event where um, we called a community-wide general strike that involved a work stoppage, a uh, business, small business closures, consumer uh, day of boycott, and um, just mass protest and mobilization um, that convened in Milwaukee. And the reason for that was to demonstrate our deep opposition 
to uh, the program 287G, Sheriff Clark from Milwaukee County um, had declared that he wants to enter into this program. This program is a key piece of Trump's executive order on immigration that is part of the structure of setting up a mass deportation program and, uh, and legalizing um, discrimination in the United States. Uh, this program would convert, allow uh, local law enforcement to uh, be uh, become immigration agents. Uh, they would be able to profile someone um, without any basis uh, of having committed anything and uh, stop, uh, interrogate them, and put them in uh, deportation proceedings. Uh, it's a program that can be quickly uh, lifted up. And uh, Trump's plan is to get uh, 70 different local entities to buy into that program in his first year. Uh, it's a program that was highly discredited, um, famously by uh, Sheriff Arpaio in Maricopa County. Right. And um, uh, so it's, it's a very discredited program that has found to violate people's constitutional rights and civil rights. Um, it also was a, a mass protest against um, the executive order as a whole, right. really using our collective economic power to demonstrate the positive economic contributions immigrants make to our economy. One of the conversations that happens a lot around politics in this country is this sort of urban-rural split. But of course, a lot of the immigrant workers in this country are working on farms. They're working in rural communities that are otherwise really white. So I'd love to talk about organizing in rural parts of Wisconsin and how you can break down the divisions in those communities. Um, this is an area that is, um, I mean, I think where we saw that the biggest breakdown was that we were able to really through social media and radio and then just through local connections that we've made as we've built chapters. Last year's Day Without Latinos, we intentionally built chapters in the different cities, at least key cities where people came from yeah. around the state. Right. And we were, used that, were able to use that as a foundation to um, quickly, in a faster way, respond to um, the current threat. Yeah. And um, so I think that's been, you know, it's been very... There's been a lot of self-organizing actually yeah. going on um, in numerous different workplaces, including the um, dairy farms. Um, but one thing that has been very helpful for us is that we had also established a relationship at a different level with uh, different employer associations. So um, like we've uh, been engaged in the Dairy Business Association over the years on different initiatives like the trying to secure driver's licenses in Wisconsin, which something which is something that's very important in rural areas yeah. when there's even less public transportation and driving is a necessity. Um, or more recently around um, communicating um, with DBA to coordinate um, communication with um, farmers yeah. about what was, again, what was going on? What was it that people were responding to, clarifying that, and also figuring out ways that the farmers could support their workforce yeah. in advocating against these these bad bills? Because right. for the dairy industry, which is um, a very key industry for Wisconsin, right. it, uh, if you eliminate the immigrant workforce, that whole industry collapses, and with it 
is a whole domino effect on a whole series of jobs that would also um, uh, drop, you know, the floor would fall out on them too if you actually did create policies of mass deportation that targeted immigrant workers. You know, so in the absence of immigration reform, you know, these policies will only drive people into greater levels of poverty. Um, and so it, that the fact that it's been immigrant worker led, but I would say that through people, through uh, radio, through Facebook, um, it has been, there has been a high level of self-organization, but having those different levels of communication have been critical to um, make sure that things move in a productive direction so that, um, you know, like, for example, in farms where it's not like a factory where they, you can just stop the work for, you know, stop the work, yeah. but, you know, the consequences would be, you know, you'd actually kill the cows who, like, um, you know, people were able to, like, coordinate uh, making sure there's a skeleton crew available and farmers in turn also uh, appreciating the, uh, from the point of view of the immigrant workers, what was really at stake, um, were an important voice within the Republican Party to um, call for like the defeat of these bad bills. So I think we believe that there needs to be uh, deeper engagement um, and the strengthening of networks um, so that we can sustain similar actions, but you know, that's, there's just also a high level of appreciation for, you know, the sacrifices that people have been doing and even just the level of self-organizing that people have been doing um, for a period of time now. Volsas has always been there to support people in the buildup, in the hour, in the aftermath, yeah. around any cases of retaliation. And we have sent delegations to meet with employers. We have given people a chance to understand and uh, take back people if there were any dismissals or any kind of retaliation to make good on that yeah. and um, to not go public. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, we do believe those there should be a public accountability of businesses that um, are not supporting their workforce, especially when the workforce um, is so critical right. to their well-being, um, to not stand with them. And uh, and so that's been by and very by and large we have had a strong record of success, and I do believe um, the organizational support for workers and their families um, should be something that accompanies all of these calls to action. And it's important that that's a commitment that's made there. Yeah. Ideally, in any city, that there's that level of support for people, um, you know, to back people up. That was Christine Neumann-Ortiz from Voices de la Frontera, and now we're going to hear from Pablo Alvarez, one of the leaders of Endelon, the National Day Labor Organizing Network, who was organizing the Day Without Immigrant protests in Los Angeles, where many workers uh, took action, protested, stayed home from work, uh, in solidarity with many other supporters and activists from the community. First of all, how did the day go? And in what ways was it, uh, did it fit in with some of the broader things that you have been doing around, you know, since Trump took office? And, and what was the coalition you ended up putting together for that day? Well, you know, going forward, the uh, fight for migrant rights under the Trump regime will be a, a decentralized uh, effort. Um, I don't think that there will be one single organization 
that, that will define this strategy moving forward. What I know is that uh, because of what Mr. Trump has done, it's generated, uh, you know, obviously an incredible, it sent an incredible wave of uh, fear among the undocumented, among the undocumented community. Uh, but it's also generated a sense of urgency in terms of people who have never been involved, both uh, citizens and non-citizens who have never been involved in this uh, in, in the fight for immigrant rights. There is a new segment of uh, of, uh, of people that understand that uh, immigration uh, will be used you know, as a, as a tool to stop any progressive initiatives to, to move forward, you know. So, so there is that segment of people um, is mobilizing and they understand what's at stake, you know. So there are new people who are participating in the immigrant rights struggle. So the Day Without an Immigrant wasn't started by an organization as far as I know. Uh, it was started, but it was essentially, you know, very grassroots. Somebody, somebody came out with the idea, posted, you know, something on Facebook, and it got a life of of of, it, of its own. And then, you know, some employers got involved, you know. So there is this incredible energy right now that people are trying to channel the best the best way possible, you know. So. But at this point, I think I think the 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 fight is going to be decentralized. We understand that uh, that you know Mr. Trump is so powerful to to confront him, you know, openly. You know, and I mean, not even the Democrats are doing that. You know, um, and and uh, so so we we understand how powerful it is. So what it's going to require for us is. Uh, you know, dozens and dozens of um, Ali fights that challenge his policies across the country. And every organization, every small group, whether it's a group of volunteers, we have to, will play a role because everybody wants to do something about it. So, um, you know, more and more, this is what we're going to see, uh, you know, happening. But more and more, you're going to see that uh, all of those grassroots efforts, you know, that, 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 um, emerge independently from organizations will actually start getting more organized as we, as you know, as uh, Mr. Trump, um, you know, unveils and implements whatever strategy he is going to push for, you know, as the deportations uh, increase. So that I can tell you, um, generally speaking, that this is going to be decentralized and that Ali fights across the country will, will pop up, you know? Uh, and Ali fights that will challenge not just the Trump administration's deportation policies, but the participation of local police and local elected officials in the in the, in the, in the plans for mass deportation. So you're gonna see a lot of this stuff across, across the country. So now, in terms of the day without an immigrant, I think, you know, I think uh, it's not the first time that something like this happens. It's happened in the past. So, and I think like um, the, the the level of maturity of people is leading in a direction uh, that where you know the economic uh, you know uh, boycott um, could 
to become a very feasible tactic moving forward. You know, so now there's talks, and this is more more organized, and, and there are more people participating and organizations participating you know, in doing a, a national stoppage on May Day. You know, so so what happened during the day without an immigrant is building in that direction. The consciousness of people is is uh, is growing in that sense. So in in LA, um, you know, obviously, um, this would have a pretty significant impact if everyone participated. Um, did you find that the workers who didn't go to work that day they had made sure that their employers would be supportive? Was it an outright, you know, confrontation? Groups of workers got together and went and, sp- and spoke to their bosses, and they said, "Hey, we wanna, we don't wanna come to work this day." And then the, some of the bosses were friendly to that to that reality you know, because they depend on that labor and and they understand you know what's at uh, what's at stake you know so 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 as i said i mean this effort happened independently and 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 uh you know people who thought that they could participate did it on their own what i saw is like um, small businesses you know who depend on migrant labor um decided to do that i mean some kids didn't didn't go to school that day, you know. In some places, more than in others. How do I assess the impact that he had? I, I don't know. I, I you know I had. Yeah, sure. Uh, and of course, these things are really hard to gauge when it's all decentralized. Um, I guess I'm just thinking like, are we going to be seeing situations where people might possibly face negative consequences for doing stuff like this when it involves a workplace? You know, like, do you think people might yet, you know, at some point? whether it was, you know, for this past day or, or on May Day, will they be in a position where they might be retaliated against by a boss? How do we escalate um, when things are so uncertain, you know, for the, this group of workers? That's where what I think that the more organized segment of the migrant rights community can place a, place a significant role. Obviously, this time around was largely very grassroots, like, uh, you know, uh, but I think like what's been planned for for May Day might be, uh, you know, probably more effective because now there are, you know, unions and organizations that are talking about it. Especially the organizations that have a member that are membership based organizations, and they're going to be talking to their members and telling them, you know, um, this is what's happening, these are the consequences of participating, this is what we can do to help you gain your job back in case you fire. I mean, when you have the more established infrastructure coming in, you know, and working together with, uh, with, with everyone, all the groups, then, then it can be better better managed so i i have a feeling that uh if 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 everything goes uh, in a direction that people are pushing for may day that it's going to be much more effective but then you know you will have a lot of um organizers across the country activists you know say doing it in a very in a very uh you know i would say um careful manner telling people hey you know preparing people for what might might happen and what steps they may take you know, to 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 uh, to make sure that they don't end up losing their jobs. It could be that they that they uh, talk to the uh, you know the owner, the boss before they 
decide to do that. I think like when we prepare, when we prepare, there is an opportunity to create, for example, uh, toolkits on how to talk to your employer about, you know, staying at home as an act of progress. I mean, we can come out with a bunch of information for people so they can make the conscious choice, you know, and if there is, you know, retaliation, that at least there is a basic sense of defense, you know, for those folks. And and, and uh, that's where you need, you know, the organizations, that's where you need this, this people to be trained on from the, from, from the bigger organizations to the smaller volunteer collectives in the neighborhoods you need to be trained on how to cope with the, with, with the consequences of, of, of participating in such a, an effort, you know, so. But I guess, you know, Michelle, I mean, I mean that, that I can tell you that, that it's going to go in that direction. And people are not just talking about, you know, the, the uh, one day, uh, you know, some folks are saying, you know, in order for us to, to have an impact, we need to do it for at least three to five days, maybe a week, so that people feel it because, you know, <laughs> one day is not going to send enough. So I just want to let you know that there is that conversation taking place among people, you know. So, uh-huh. so, so I mean, uh, I don't know where it's going to go, but it de- definitely, you know, more and more people want to lift the value of labor, you know. And the value of labor has not been lifted up enough in the immigration debate. You know, uh, but obviously the labor is not the only angle in this uh, in this in this struggle. You know, because um, if you think about the adversary strategy, deportation is only one aspect uh, of of the of the immigrant immigration debate. Uh, our adversaries are very clear about what they want and. And they made it part of the SB 1070 language. It's it's uh, it's um, it's about you know uh, it's about the attrition uh, strategy, meaning that they want to make it miserable uh, for families to essentially pack their stuff and leave on, on their own. So um, they're going to use whatever they can to limit the possibilities of survival for the undocumented. Community, you know, they will limit access to the to the institutions that administer justice, so that people are in fear. They are victims of witnesses of crimes. You know, they they don't want them to be protected. You know, if uh, if the they want to limit, you know, the landlords from renting to undocumented people to undocumented tenants. I mean, you name it, they're going to explore all kinds of options. You know, the attrition strategy is now being run by the federal government. Before. It was being run by the extremist xenophobes and nativists. Now it's the federal government that has adopted that strategy, and they're going to unleash it in every way they can. You know, and uh, and 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 deportation, as I said, is only one piece of 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 the whole thing. The reality, in my view, is that uh, you know there is uh, people like Bannon, and that segment of the of the. Uh, White community want to make sure that the number of non-whites doesn't continue growing because they view it as a threat to their to their they view it as a, even as an existential threat and they have said it openly, you know. So so the idea is to uh, bring down the number of non-citizens in our country, you know. So to me, I'm clear about what is it that 
that they want, you know, and they're going to use whatever they can to make sure that that happens. You know, deportation is only one thing. So, so we have to use all of the arguments that are, are disposable and are disposable and all the, the strategies and tactics that we can use. And obviously sending the economic message is one aspect of what we need to do. You know, obviously not all the migrant community is a worker. I mean, there are students, there are people who have who are retired. I mean, you have all kinds of people, there are people who are, you know, business owners, they're not necessarily workers, you know. Um, so our struggle is not just about protecting workers. I mean, we have to protect workers, we have to protect families as well, protect students, you know. So, uh, but we definitely need to lift up the value of labor more because what it is is that everybody enjoys it, uh, from friends to foes. They enjoy the, the, the you know, the fruits of uh, undocumented people's labor. But then, but they refuse to accept uh, their humanity, and that means that that argument needs to be lifted up as well, you know. So, and I think uh, if this is a good, if, if people are ready for this kind of impact, you know, they, as I said, you know, all, all uh, everything, like nobody have has one winning strategy, tactic. You know, we're going to explore all kinds of things, you know, uh, because. Trump's policies and practices are completely unpredictable. So we have to be the same, unpredictable, unpredictable and decentralized as we resist, uh, you know, his, uh, his, uh, his, his agenda. Just thinking about how this operates locally, you said that um, you want um, to sort of live the values of labor in um, this struggle for to protect and defend um, immigrants' rights, and and um, if you look at the way that the, these executive orders are are shaking out, they're increasingly concentrating on uh, workplace-based enforcement, right? Looking at Correct. things like fraud, social security, the same things that they usually um, pull out when they talk when they try to criminalize people, right? Um, get them where they work, get like, criminalize the act of working. Um, since you have been organizing with undocumented workers, you know, as workers for so long, what are some lessons that you you have learned after organizing um, this group of really marginalized workers for rights that that everyone should have? Right. Um, how how yeah. should we put those yeah. in the context of this moment? Undocumented people oftentimes face indignities that are worse than not having papers. Uh, somehow, you know, we've made the issue of the, the issue of migration the only issue. The, need, the issue of deportation, the need for immigration reform, we've made it. We've made it the only issue that undocumented people face. So when you talk to undocumented people, you're going to see much more than you know people not having papers. I mean, it, it's about parents you know, having their kids in in school districts where they have been threatened, you know, by principals uh, with, uh, you know, that if they complain about whatever, uh, that whatever that's wrong in that district, that they're going to call immigration authorities, you know. Uh, we're talking about people's, people going out to work, uh, you know, and not getting paid for the work uh, that, they, that they do. We're talking about people being 
evicted or rent been been raised uh you know with from one week to another you know they people have to come out with 500 additional dollars to pay for a place to live so all of these issues that americans face all of all of these are the issues that undocumented people face and as i said some of some of the indignities are even worse than not having documents when you talk to people it's very simple you know i mean the way the way i view it is that um you know um when you talk to people you know they'll they'll tell you if i apply for a job i just want to be able to go and produce a social security number here it is you know and i can i want to have the same access than, than any other person has you know to apply for a job People say, hey, uh, you know, if I am driving and there is a police officer, you know, a patrol unit behind my car, I don't want to feel that fear. And I want to go to a store, you know, and look at the person there at the store, have that person look at me straight in the eyes, you know, and look at me like I am a person from another planet. You know, I want to be able to go and take and go and register my kids, you know, at the school district and be treated just like everybody else is like citizens are treated in this country. You know, so these are little things, you know, that that people want you know, and need in order to live a life that is equal to everybody else's in those uh, neighborhoods. Deportation is just one thing, you know, one, one uh, obstacle that people have to face uh, in, in, in their lives, you know. So, so but, it's, it's, but it's a very important one, you know. So um, I know that uh, part of the strategy of the Trump administration might be that, um, uh, I mean, I can actually see it going into workplaces, doing 99 audits, making sure that undocumented people lose their jobs, and then promoting legal permanent residents and or U.S. citizens to take on those jobs and and turn that into a media spectacle and saying, look, America first. We're taking care of Americans, you know, taking away the jobs from the illegals and giving it to people. So that's exactly what I was describing to you, Michelle. That's the attrition strategy. To you know, uh, essentially asphyxiate uh, immigrants to, uh, you know, create less and less options for them to be able to feed themselves and feed their loved ones, you know. And that's not not only just in terms of jobs, but it's in in terms of access to justice, access to housing, uh, access to education for their kids, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So it's the whole... The whole, you know, it's across the board, what I would say. And that was Pablo Alvarez of Endelon. And now we go to New York. Basma Eid from the Worker Center Federation. She has been training local worker centers in leadership and organizing tactics. And she reflected on what Trump means for grassroots organizing in a state of siege. So for the past three years, you know, we've been working on building intersectional 
multiracial, multilingual, diverse um, solidarities of both immigrant workers and also of non-immigrant workers, but predominantly people of color. And in our federation, in our coalition, you know, we have folks who are Muslim, folks who are LGBTQ, queer, we have folks who are immigrants. So we have all these people that are you know, under attack by by the administration. And so what we've really been doing for the past three years is building their leadership and pushing forward, you know, what a new labor movement could look like. And so when the inauguration was happening, the workers um, who meet together four times a year as part of a leadership institute called the Delfino Leadership Institute came together and decided, you know, we, we know what the vision of Trump, you know, we know what their vision is and what the fascist vision of, of the states could be, but we want to build our own vision. And we we have an idea of what it would mean for our communities to be safe and what what it would mean for us to have freedom in our communities. And so they decided they wanted to launch a, a new movement called Freedom Cities. And so Freedom Cities is rooted in this idea of redefining safety and freedom, but also pushing beyond, you know, the ideas of sanctuary. So one of the workers um, had mentioned, oh, you know, you know, we should respond to Trump by being more involved in the sanctuary movement. But the folks who weren't immigrants were like, well, I'm, I'm not being protected in sanctuary. Sanctuary is leaving out a whole, you know, a whole array of, of people. And so they decided that they wanted to go beyond it and really create um, this, this new movement. And so it's bringing in not only, you know, labor justice and labor rights, but also like pushing for, for broader economic justice, for the ending of criminalization in our communities. So people are not only workers, but people are also coming from communities where there's um, broken windows policing, for example, continuously harassing our, our communities. And so it was based around these these principles of ending criminalization, building community defense, you know, whether that's through campaigns like the Hate Free Zone um, that's pushed forward by Drum, who's a member of the Federation, pushing forward, uh, you know, more emphasis around having gender justice, both in and outside the workplace, and also bringing in, you know, how we can be building community power and global justice um, broadly. I just want to go back to the hate-free zone. I mean, that is sort of a reiteration of sanctuary that is more assertive, I think, than just saying like, okay, here, like we have a you know a deportation-free zone or whatever. I mean, it's um, you're mm-hmm. actually saying this is a place where we proactively kind of reclaim um, you know this chunk of the city for ourselves. You know, to the extent that the workplace is a place of struggle, right? You know, how how are you working that into um, your organizing strategy? Well, I think. Um... For for us, I mean, it's launching this movement is going to be multifolded, and so the workplace is definitely going to be one side of struggle. But I think there are different levels. So there's both the community level within hate-free zones, but then there's maybe the broader policy levels. Um, you know, for example, we really want to push things like safety-bound policing, and so redefining safety and how it relates to. Um, you know, the police. So as opposed to adding more cops in the NYPD, um, you know, we could be reinvesting in, in pushing in our community. For us, our community isn't only immigrants. It's, you know, it's a, it's a very diverse, um, you know, our communities are diverse. And so when we're talking about um, pushing beyond sanctuary, it's about bringing in, um, you know, ending criminalization of both, you know, immigrants and non-immigrants. And for example, a lot of the a lot of what we hear when, when it comes to, um, you know, the immigration world is like, you know, this kind of dichotomy of the good immigrant and the bad immigrant. And so folks who are, you know, being, de- you know, who are often the folks who are being detained and deported are folks who are, um, who have, quote unquote, criminal convictions. And so we want to be protecting those folks as well. So we want um, to be building these freedom cities um, that create safety both in the workplace, but on the broader in the community um, and, and everywhere that we, that we are. 
what can a worker center bring to that that isn't found in some other uh, strategy or, or type of organization? This whole idea came from the Federation of Worker Centers. So it was the workers themselves who had um, been meeting regularly, um, you know, building their leadership. And they were the ones who were like, you know, this is a vision that we have. Um, and so I think worker centers who really encompass um, a wide range of folks who I think are on the front lines of an administration like Trump um, have really strong and important voices that are often being left out of the conversation around resistance. And so I think there's definitely a, a strength in that, in that, in, in the grassroots. And I think worker centers are the grassroots of resistance. Yeah. And, and I guess, um, do you have any plans coming up either in response to what we saw today with this new spate of executive actions or on May Day mm-hmm. or anything? Yeah, I mean, for us, I mean, May Day is going to be a, a huge push, and I think there are a lot of folks that are organizing around May Day, um, but we want to make sure that um, the voices of workers are front and center, and workers who are, of course, non-traditional, not, you know, we're not talking only work, uh, union workers, but of course, workers from worker centers, um, and so here in New York City, we're, we're working with folks trying to think about how we can incorporate um, this idea of Freedom Cities into plans around May Day, um, but yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a, we're in for the long haul, and, and I think there's still, unfortunately, a lot that's left to, to be seen, um, but folks are energized. You know, we, we had a convening, uh, a training on, on Saturday, and people, um, you know, regardless of, of what's happening around them, are, are committed. They want to be fighting back. They are actively fighting back, um, and, and, you know, they're not being deterred. So I think there's definitely a lot of hope there. And that was Basma Aid of the Worker Center Federation talking about the Day Without Immigrant protests. You're listening to Belabored, a Descent Magazine podcast. Links to articles mentioned in this episode may be found at descentmagazine.org. Now it's time for our where we talk about the pieces that we read recently and wish we had written but did not. So my pick is by Shana Medley. She's writing at the On Labor blog, and she talks about abortion restrictions as forced labor in the age of Trump. Have you ever thought about pregnancy as a burden on the body, on your social life? What about as outright enslavement? This is the idea behind a unique reading of the 13th Amendment prohibiting slavery. In an age of Trump, in which politicians seem all too willing to crush women's economic and reproductive freedom in one fell swoop, it is vital to think about how reproductive equity and economic equity are interlinked in the workforce and in society as a whole. So she writes... The Supreme Court has interpreted the amendment's prohibition on involuntary servitude to be more expansive than a prohibition on slavery alone. In Plessy v. Ferguson, for example, the court wrote involuntary servitude encompasses, quote, the control of the labor or services of one person for the benefit of another, and the absence of a legal right to the disposal of one's own person, property, and services, end quote. Forced pregnancy controls the body of a pregnant person to serve the fetus, Medley writes. The government, by outlawing abortion, is imposing coercion that results in the involuntary pregnancy and labor. It is important for labor advocates to take notice of this framing and the labor implications of forced pregnancy, given the current threats to the existing constitutional framework. So she goes from there to saying that pregnant women, well, 
culturally, we may all be expected to be glowing expectant mothers when we're pregnant, joyfully shouldering the burden of pregnancy. But this image, of course, fails to take into account the severe economic inequality that is exacerbated by barriers to reproductive choice. So Medley explains that both discrimination against women workers and against pregnant women, in particular at work, have led to acute hardships being imposed on women as a consequence of pregnancy, especially for poor women. And when you don't have a choice in pregnancy and when your pregnancy is unwanted and you're being forced to carry it to term because you can't get an abortion anywhere near you because of restrictive anti-abortion laws, then, well, that is both a cause of economic hardship and a symptom of gender inequality and, yes, enslavement of a sort throughout the workforce. And according to the 13th Amendment analysis that is explained by Medley, and Andrew Koppelman, the constitutional scholar she cites, he writes, a forced labor view of abortion restrictions would most certainly call into question a six-week abortion ban or even a decision overturning Roe v. Wade, and that goes for Oklahoma's proposed, quote, paternal consent law, which would ban abortion without the written consent from the, quote, father. The legislator behind the bill expressed his belief that a woman's body is not her own, in fact, must belong to a man somehow, especially when you are under a certain age. And because when she is pregnant, she becomes a host for the fetus, Koppelman argues, a law giving the father of the fetus the right to veto an abortion would present the easiest 13th Amendment case of all because it gives another person complete control over the body and labor services of the individual. So let's put this in a contemporary context. If your body is being used as a vessel for literally producing the next generation of workers, then you're essentially being forced to undergo reproductive labor in the truest sense possible, and you have no say in the conditions of your work, you have no say in how you are compensated or if you are compensated at all, and in fact you're most likely paying a lot for that pregnancy, especially if you are a single mother. You're paying physically, psychologically, and of course economically, not just in terms of lost wages, but perhaps in terms of lost career prospects, or even being fired or pushed out of the job altogether because of rife pregnancy discrimination across many workforces. And that social cost will be borne by the mother alone for the rest of her life. This analysis can be directly applied to social policy as well, uh, such as cutting uh, Medicaid access to family planning or abortion services. And this also extends beyond U.S. borders when Washington restricts, say, foreign aid funding for social service agencies that in any way support abortion rights or reproductive care or contraceptive access. So reconceptualizing prohibitions on government funding for abortion services as forced labor, uh, Medley writes, may provide a more compelling lens for scrutinizing restrictions like the global gag rule, the Hyde Amendment, or the repeal of the ACA contraceptive mandate. And here, the Affordable Care Act repeal, which we are all facing in perhaps a matter of months, will make it costlier for all working women, and especially working pregnant women, to afford the right to free choice about their reproductive fates. Arming ourselves with the most powerful human rights protection in the Constitution and being able to apply an anti-slavery analysis and an anti-forced labor analysis to reproductive rights is really important for the debate over intersectionality, it's important for feminism, and under Trump we need all the weapons we can get. They do not call it labor for nothing. 
In keeping with our discussion this week, the piece that made me go ARG looks at the other end of the labor and the deportation cycle, what happens when people are sent back to a country they barely know. This is from The New Yorker, titled The Deportees Taking Our Calls by Jonathan Blitzer. In El Salvador, where violence is commonplace, there's a new trend in town, call centers, which rely on an influx of deportees whose U.S. English is a prized commodity. Blitzer writes, quote, They generally speak fluent and idiomatic English, the most crucial requirement for call center work. Their next most important quality is their desperation. Deportees are very loyal, a recruiter for a call center told the news service McClatchy. They know they won't get another shot. At one call center I visited, more than half the employees had been deported from the U.S. Recruiters show up at an isolated hangar of the San Salvador airport to intercept deportees as they get off small jets flown in by Immigration and Customs Enforcement. Eddie Anzora, who Blitzer followed for the piece, worked at a call center called Sykes, where he took calls for the likes of Hotels.com and Kodak. In the center, he made friends with fellow deportees who call themselves deportistas, or Spanish for athletes, rather than deportados, which is the technical term for those who've been deported. It felt good speaking to Americans, especially when those guys live close to where you used to hang out, he told Blitzer. But when the calls ended, he said, you're back in El Salvador. And because the call centers are the best game in town, another business is also flourishing, English schools, which are a good option for people who grew up in the U.S. to work and use their language skills. But deportees in El Salvador are stigmatized as gang members, even if they have no actual connection to the gangs. Blitzer traces the lineage of the Salvadoran gangs in both the U.S. and El Salvador, the violence that the U.S. government supported and expanded during the war years, and how it fed into today's violence, and how deportations simply move these problems around as people leave for the U.S. fleeing war at home and then are sent back into it. Through all of this, the call centers start to look like a pretty good option for deportees. They pay better than most jobs do, certainly. But being a deportee makes people targets of the gangs as well. And Zora told Blitzer that the call center used to hang up pictures of employees who were killed but stopped when it began to happen too often. Yet the country is doing its best to lure more call centers to locate in El Salvador rather than in India and the Philippines. And so a beefed-up deportation machine allows them to hire lifelong U.S. English speakers at a fraction of what it would cost to do so within the U.S. That is all for today. Thank you again for listening, and a special thank you to our sustaining members who make it possible for us to bring you this podcast. If you want to become a sustaining member or make a one-time donation, you can, in fact, if you donate $5 or more per month, get a sweet belabored tote bag. You can find information on that and everything we've talked about today at descentmagazine.org. You can also email us if you are a farm worker or a bank worker in El Salvador or Brazil, if you are organizing for a May 1st strike, if you have any more information about our would-be second would-be labor secretary, or if you have any questions about anything we've discussed today at belabored at dissentmagazine.org and tweet at us at hashtag belabored. Thanks as always to Descent for hosting us and Natasha Lewis, our producer. We will be back in two weeks. You've been listening to Descent Magazine's belabored podcast. For the entire archive of past episodes, visit descentmagazine.org. Join us online using hashtag belabored. <laughs>